0: We are in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ... He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. If we were to script the book of Acts as a play or as a movie, the opening scene, chapter one, would be in Jerusalem. The last scene, the very end of the book of Acts, would be in Rome. That's the progress of the gospel. Jesus had said they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, that's the southern area. Then in Samaria, the area to the north and outside, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. The story we have before us today is that time when the gospel reached the frontier beyond the land of Palestine. They had gone at this point all through Jerusalem, all through Judea, and down and through Samaria. And last week we saw that Philip, the evangelist, had had a ministry in the south part, in the area of the Philistines, Gaza, the southern part going down toward Africa. The gospel today in our story comes to the edge of the Mediterranean on its eastern shore, on the shores of the great Roman province of Syria, which included Judea and and Philistia and Lebanon, modern Lebanon, and all of that area through there. The town is Caesarea. Humbly named after Caesar. It was a fortress city. It was an imperial city. It was where the Roman troops were headquartered to take care of that whole province of the Middle East called Syria at the time. Peter has been preaching and he's moved through the area to the coast and he's made it to Joppa, a modern Palestinian town. And he's preached the gospel. He's begun to preach to mixed multitudes, people that are Jews and Samaritans, Jews and, and somewhat uh, uh, Gentile. Philip, we saw last week, dealt with a man from Ethiopia who is a God-fearer, a, certainly an ethnic Gentile, but Someone that was interested in the things of the Lord and had been to the temple to worship and was reading the holy scriptures of Isaiah and was very much oriented toward the Jews and their faith. Now we're moving to the frontier. It's interesting that before Philip, I mean before Peter gets to Caesarea, where our scene is today, he was taking a nap at a house right on the ocean, looking out across the Mediterranean. If he could have fired a rifle straight out across the ocean, he would have hit Rome, looking due east from where he was. I mean, due west from where he was. The gospel is now moving to the Gentiles. What we have here now is a complete... Gentile audience, people who were not part of the Jerusalem population, not part of Judea, not part of Israel, but people who were thoroughgoing Gentiles, thoroughgoing Romans, and certainly what would be thought of for hundreds of years outside the commonwealth of Israel. And it's an interesting thing that happens. There's a lot in it. And I'll just point out two or three things as we go. The first thing I'd like to point out in our scripture is that we didn't read verse 33. We started verse 34 was our assigned text. But I like verse 33. It said, so I said, this is Cornelius, the Roman centurion that had sent for Peter to come. He said, I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord boy I just music to a preacher's ears <laughs> it said earlier in the text up many many persons had gathered I don't know how big Cornelius' house was. I don't know if it was one of those Roman places that had a huge courtyard or maybe a a portico and an area where uh, scores of people could gather for festive occasions and even serious occasions. It might have been the common meeting hall for the cohort and all the people that he was in charge of. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was big enough it had a good crowd. And so standing before Peter now was was a group of bare-faced Gentiles uncircumcised outside the covenant not offspring of Abraham nowhere near the temple men and women boys and girls just like most of us in this room if not all of us outside the covenant read what Paul says in Ephesians 2 about those people that were outside the covenant salvation is of the Jews salvation came to the Jews God promised it to Abraham he promised it to Moses and David salvation came to Israel it belonged to Israel Jesus is the Jewish Messiah the Jewish king he's to be the savior of the Jewish people And no one will ever be saved until they become a Jew. No one will ever be saved until they become a Jew. All the promises God made were to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. Here is the thing we need to know. If we don't get anything else this morning, let's get that. You become a Jew by having the faith of Abraham, not the sperm of Abraham. That's a mighty argument made over and over in Scripture. Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, quoting Isaiah, quoting Genesis, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, the prophets, over and over, over. It is clear as it can be as we sit here today That a Jew is not one that is one outwardly, that is in the flesh, that is an ethnic, physical descendant of Abraham. The true Jew is Christ and those who are in Christ by the faith of Abraham. What faith? Abraham believed God. God talked about a blessing, a blessing that would come upon the peoples of the earth. It would come through Abraham. And that blessing is none other than Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings, And faith in Jesus Christ is exactly what Abraham had. God told him about the seed, the offspring, the son, Jesus. And Abraham believed it. And God accounted to him righteousness. That's how you become a Jew. You do what Abraham did. You believe in Jesus. You trust In the gospel that was preached, and that's the way Paul puts it, he said the gospel was preached to Abraham, and Abraham believed God. What gospel? The very gospel that's outlined in our text. So now this is a marvelous thing. Now this is not easy for anybody to understand, and it certainly wasn't easy for the first century Jews to understand. And the first major council that the church had All of the difficulties in Paul's ministry and all of that somehow reflect upon this notion of how does the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ relate to the Gentiles, the nations, the ethnic groups, the peoples, everybody that's not a Jew, the uncircumcised. And it was a struggle for them to understand. And let me tell you how God enabled Peter to understand it. He did several things. First of all, he took him into preaching missions that got him into kind of compromising situations to where he could begin to see that God was up to something. But then he really did it on his way to Caesarea in Joppa. God gave him a vision. We saw this earlier in this same chapter. And the vision was of the kosher laws, the clean and unclean animals. And through that vision, God taught Peter that there was no difference. And that's the way Peter opens up his sermon. He says, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, in every ethnic group, among all the Gentiles, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Then he goes right and says, The word that was sent to that God sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened. And he starts with the Jewish Genesis of Christ, the savior and the gospel story. The Lord worked it all out through ethnic Israel. He worked it out through his people, his chosen people from the days of Abraham, all the way through the days of Moses and David and the, and the prophets and the, and all the kings, and all down through the years. God worked it out, but He was working it out for the salvation because in the very promise to begin with, it says, through you, through the blessing that comes to you, that is, Jesus Christ from the loins of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that's what's happening here. This is becoming clear as it can be. And the fellow that's taking the news is Peter, who is probably the most committed and the most... uh, prejudiced and narrow-minded of any of the men of the apostolic band. And let me tell you how the Lord convinced him. Is that Peter preached Christ, which I hope I'll be able to do here in about two minutes. Peter preached Christ, and in preaching of Christ, while he was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell and was poured out on this 100% uncircumcised Gentile people and they spoke in tongues. And the Bible tells us that with tongues are a sign gift. They signify things. They signified something on Pentecost. Peter was there to explain what they did in fact signify. The speaking in tongues was the symbol of God's power. He said with foreign tongues I will speak to this people. And it was the tongue speaking of the Gentiles that convinced Peter. How ironic. That Peter at Pentecost, it was Peter explaining the tongues. to the the men of Israel. But here, it's Peter learning from the tongues. And he saw that God did exactly the same thing to the Gentiles that He had done to the men of Israel on Pentecost. There's a lot of similarity, but a lot of differences. Between the day of Pentecost. For one thing, Peter preached, and the people were convicted, they didn't know what to do. He told them to believe. He told them to be baptized. He told them they had to put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Messiah, that had been slain and crucified, but God had raised up. And if he'll do all that, then God would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here, he hadn't even finished preaching, hadn't, they haven't done anything. Hadn't even been baptized yet, hasn't repented yet. He's still preaching the gospel. And the Spirit fell. The Spirit of God moves the way He wants to, when He wants to, how He wants to. And His coming upon them generated within them that same unique gift the gift of tongues. It had a specific purpose. It wasn't for just meaningless babble among God's people. It was a definite sign, and it worked in definite places in that early days of the church to show people what God was doing and what His power is. And that's what happened. Peter preached Jesus. And let's just look at the outline. What you have here is a really fantastic outline of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you'll follow it carefully, it follows exactly the script of the Gospel of Mark, which was tradition tells us the Gospel of Mark was a sermon that Peter preached at length, and it was copied out and memorized and spread and put in in place by the Emmanuelist John Mark. In other words, Peter is preaching here the sermon that he his stock sermon on Jesus Christ, and it is the most consistent and deliberate outlay of the truth of the historic person, Jesus Christ, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, and the apostles' relationship to him. And it forms what's known, in fact the word is used in the text, in the, in the original text it's called the kerygma, and it's the proclamation of the gospel. And the most Clear delineation of the charisma, the apostolic charisma found anywhere in the New Testament is the text that we have before us today. But let me just outline it for you quickly there in verse 37. It says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. That's where John, uh, John Mark begins his particular gospel. Is that not at the Nativity, like Matthew and Luke? And not with a philosophical setup like you find in John, but he begins with the baptism of John the Baptist and the ministry that followed that with Jesus. And this is where Peter Peter, uh, begins it. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. It was in the synagogue at Nazareth that the Lord said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the captive, and so forth. Quoting Isaiah 61. So that was the beginning there in Nazareth, in the synagogue where Jesus grew up. He said, This scripture is fulfilled in your ears this day. That's what Jesus said there on that occasion. Here's the summary of Jesus' life He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. Oh, (laughs) freedom from the devil getting us out from under that tempting voice, moving us away from that lying, speaking, harassing, roaring. The father of lies, the father of murder, the father of dissension, the father of everything that is wrong with mankind since the days of the Garden of Eden, the devil The old serpent has needed to have his head crushed. And then Peter talks about that's what he did. He says we're witnesses that all that he did in Jerusalem, they put him to death. (laughs) At Pentecost, Peter looked at the very Sanhedrin and said, you by wicked hands have crucified and slain the Son of God, but God raised him up. Now he's over here on the frontier preaching to Gentiles who didn't have anything to do firsthand with the calling up of Jesus for crucifixion. It was the Jews that demanded the death. Pilate, the Roman, said, I find no fault in him. But the Jews demanded it and Pilate consented. Peter gets it right. He said, they crucified him, hanging him on a tree. It's interesting that Peter uses this term in his epistle that he hung on a tree. If you know your Old Testament, you know there's a special curse that goes along with that. Cursed is everyone that hung up on a tree. That is technically and legally and judicially how God the Father could have Jesus hung on a tree and fall under the curse without Jesus in fact violating any of the terms of the covenant and falling under the curse by disobedience. So that God could be just and the justifier of those that come to Christ. In other words, God is technically correct in everything he does. Jesus hung on that cross suffering a curse. Not because he was a disobedient son like Absalom who had hung upon a tree because he had been rebellious toward his father David. But instead Jesus hangs on the tree falling under a curse. But he was cursed for us he was in our place he was bearing that curse in our place and falling under the justice of god but god raised him on the third day there's the resurrection and made him to appear there's all the post resurrection appearances that we talk about uh, every easter season he appeared not only to all, not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by god as witnesses In other words, many saw him, above 500 brethren on one occasion. Many saw him, but it was imperative that they that saw Jesus, who were the ones that were chosen to be apostles, witnesses, firsthand. The ones that he would later say we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead to confirm that he was bodily raised. It wasn't just a ghost they were saying. Ghost doesn't have dinner with you. Ghosts may appear to you, but he doesn't eat spaghetti. Jesus was real in his humanity. And they witnessed it with their eyes. And they were specially chosen witnesses. These were the men that produced the New Testament scriptures. That bore apostolic witness, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And he commanded us to preach to the great commission. Preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. The Great Commission is to take the gospel to the world, to the frontier and beyond. Just like we read in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 22, which talks about the death of Christ, but then in the end of the Psalm, the passage that we read responsively tells us that the gospel is for the nations, for the world, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, male, female, rich, poor, bond, free, all sorts of people, all kinds of people, all classes and categories of people to be the judge. Oh, I didn't know that was part of the gospel. I thought we preached about Jesus saving us and dying for our sins and raising for our justification. How we are to come put our faith in Him. Well, that's gospel truth. Amen. But here's a little more gospel. Appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Did you know Jesus offers Himself this morning as your Savior? He asks you to bow, to come to Him, to embrace, to trust Him, to surrender your life to Him. But if you don't do it, if you won't come, if you won't bow, if you won't confess, if you won't humble yourself in the presence of Almighty God, trust in Jesus Christ alone, and Him alone for your salvation, trusting His finished work on the cross to be all that you need to be right with God, if you won't do that, you'll stand before Him and He'll be your judge. What kind of scenario is it to stand before a judge guilty? And what are you guilty of? Not trusting and believing in the work that the judge had already done for you. What kind of insult is that? To stand as an unbeliever before Christ Himself who has done all, given all, suffered all for you. And you trample underfoot His blood and go on your own way. And then you have to meet Him someday and explain to Him why, why you don't trust Him. You don't believe in Him. You don't love Him. You don't want Him. I don't know what you're going to say when you stand there.